Good evening. I am immensely honored to be with you this week in this capacity and just, uh, I don't know what to say. I, I'm so thankful to the Lord in terms of uh, what he's done in my life, uh, saving me and indwelling me with the Holy Ghost and giving me his word and placing me in the body of Christ and and one of the gifts out of that has been my lovely wife, who's uh, with me this week. And I'm so thankful to you all for not just bringing me, but bringing her along with me. Uh, that definitely helps uh, to uh, get through a week like this and, and enjoy it. You know, we've been married now for 20 years, so it feels weird when you sleep in a bed and she's not there, right? So it, it's really nice to, to have her here. But uh, one of the gifts that the Lord gave me was not just Troy, but the Stocksdale family and they mean the world to me. Uh, pushing 30 years now, not many people can say that. To, to walk with someone as close as, as we have and to be able to minister with him uh, this week is, is a treat. And, and that's putting it lightly. I do want you to know that I'm here this week under the authority and support of my pastor, Sam Miles, back in Kansas City. Uh, he'll be with us tomorrow evening. So Look forward to having him be a part, but I'm so thankful for Sam uh, over the years. He's just uh, just been all about whatever God is up to in our lives and just advancing that as well as he can. He is uh, a fantastic pastor. He's a wonderful brother. Uh, he's a very, very dear friend, so I'm very thankful to, to be able to serve the Lord with him in Kansas City and, and, and getting to be here with you uh, for this week. And so... Uh, we're just going to trust the Lord as we open the scriptures and, and just hear what the Holy Spirit of God has to say to us from his word. And I just want to challenge you, myself included, uh, to just be open. Be open to whatever the Lord would say to you and whatever he reveals to you, however he uh, stirs you to respond. Uh, let me just implore you to do so without delay. Uh, whatever that is, uh, he's worthy of it. Amen. With that, why don't we pray and position ourselves uh, to sit before him and uh, just, just, just for him to move in this space and, and not just tonight, but in the morning sessions, uh, just for him to have his way. Amen. Father in heaven, we do thank you. Your word is perfect. Your spirit is powerful. And so tonight... Lord, we will just agree to rest there. There's nothing special about this vessel. Um, I know that. Um, what's special is it's you. It's your word. It's your spirit. And so, uh, Lord, we're just going to rest there tonight. We're going to position ourselves at your feet, and we're just going to listen. And we're going to uh, receive uh, what you reveal to us. And, and Lord, we know that it will please you greatly if we would take what we hear, what we've heard this morning, what we're going to hear tonight, what we're going to hear in the mornings, what we're going to hear in the evenings, Lord. It would bring you great glory if we would honestly take that and run with it. That is what you desire. And so, Lord, would you, for your glory, would you accomplish that this week? In Jesus' name, amen. The smallest known adult insect in the world is a parasitic wasp. 
also known as fairy fly. Some of you might be familiar with that. Um, the males, in particular, are wingless, and they're also blind. Uh, they come in at a whopping 0.005 inches long. The tallest mountain in the world, of course, is Mount Everest, and it comes in at a whopping 29,029 feet. When we approach the Word of God on the topic of worship, I feel like a parasitic wasp at the, at the foot of Mount Everest. I really do. I am overmatched. I am overwhelmed, uh, greatly intimidated. All of those things, it brings you face to face with the greatness of God and the nothingness of me. Worship. I mean, I, I have been trembling <laughs> in a healthy way, terrified. Uh, God is massive, and the topic of worship is as large. And so God is gracious, and he's merciful, and so with his help, we're going to just trust him together to enlighten us in the mornings and the evenings about this topic of worship. I know many people were traveling to get here tonight, and you may have missed this morning, and, and let me just encourage you to go back and listen to that because God used Troy to lay a great foundation, I believe, for everything that we're going to be looking at this week in the evenings and in the mornings. But in the evening sessions, we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 5. And what you have in First Kings chapter 8 and in Second Chronicles chapters 5 through 7, we see the account of the dedication of the temple that Solomon built for the glory of God. And we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 primarily because there are some details that we're going to be able to see there that we don't get in 1 Kings chapter 8. But when you come to the dedication of the house of God, when you come to the dedication of the temple, what you see is that it is the most detailed account of a dedication service in the word of God. We also encounter the longest prayer in Scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 8, 41 verses are devoted to Solomon's prayer during this dedication. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 42 verses are dedicated to Solomon's prayer during the dedication of the temple. And the details of this dedication are so magnificent. I mean, they are, they are so magnificent that when I approached this, I thought somehow I'm going to be able to cover, and which is what I communicated to Troy, I'm going to cover 2 Chronicles chapters 5 through 7. And once I began delving into chapter 5, I realized that that's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, it will make your head explode, right? God's word is that wonderful, correct? It's awesome. But what gave me peace about covering this this week is I really believe that the Lord would have us to get a visual of what a dedicated house looks like to him. And I think we need to see that. I think it's critical that we see that. We begin in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold. And all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. 
So the silver, the gold, the instruments were all things that David had collected through battle and he had dedicated to God. Now, that might seem trivial, but it is anything but that because it is foundational to what I believe the Lord would have us to see tonight. Listen, David's heart, as we know, was to build this house for God. That was his heart. He wanted to do it. God had other plans. David wouldn't do it. Obviously, Solomon, his son, would. And David's response was one of appreciation, preparation, and dedication. I mean, he responded in a way where even though he wasn't going to build it, he did everything that he could have done to support it. You would have thought that he was going to build it after all. It was beautiful. Ultimately, for David, it wasn't about who got to build the house as much as it was what the house was about. And what the house was about was the worship and glory of God. That's what it was about. And so this teaches us what I believe is a very critical lesson about worship that we're trusting God to build tonight. And that is, if we're going to get this thing called worship right, and we must, we have to get this right before God. We must get this right. And if we're going to keep it right, listen, we must keep the focus where it belongs. And the focus belongs on God and his glory, not us. Period. Not us at all. <laughs> David, listen, did not pout or whine about not being able to build this house. Not at all, because it wasn't about him. Instead, in an act of worship which brought glory to God, he dedicated to it. Even though I might not build it, but but I can definitely dedicate to it. Now today we know that we are the temple of God. But what Solomon's temple was to be about is what we must be about as the temple of God in this dispensation. And what is that? Listen, we must be, we must be to the glory of God. We must be a dedicated house of worship. This is what we must be. As the temple of God in this dispensation, we must be a house of dedicated worship to God. This gets to the heart of worship. But if we're going to possess the heart of worship, then listen, we must possess the heart of David. We do where the focus is on God alone and not us. So Solomon brought in all the things that his father had dedicated and put them among the treasures of the house of God. And when you began examining the things that he brought in and put in the treasures of the house of God, we can clearly identify and articulate the heart of worship. Verse 1 says that Solomon brought in the silver, the gold, and the instruments that his father had dedicated. We understand that silver is a type of redemption. It represents what God has done for his people. We understand that gold is a type of royalty or deity, so it points to who God is, and then instruments, of course, 
are a type of vessels for God to use. And so as we look at those things, at the heart of worship, here's what we see. The heart of worship, listen, is the total dedication of self to God in response to who he is and what he has done for us. That's the heart of worship. It is a big word, right? It's a massive word. It's, it's, it is larger than all of us combined. It's incredible, but, but at the heart, this is what it is. Listen, this has to be the why behind our worship and everything that we do as believers. It is in response to who God is and what he has done for us. That's the heart of worship. Listen, whether we are giving or going, uh, praying or praising, uh, serving or sacrificing, this is why. It is because of who God is and what he has done for us. Listen, God is awesome. He's magnificent. He's mighty. He's majestic. He's incredible. He's great. That's who he is. He's gracious. He's long-suffering. He's kind. He's good. He's fantastic. He's awesome. That's who he is. And had God not redeemed Israel out of Egypt, listen, there would not have been any silver, gold, or instruments to dedicate. There would not have been a temple to build and dedicate. And without his redemption of us, we too would have nothing to dedicate. Verse 2, then Solomon assembled all the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. The ark of the covenant represented the presence and throne of God in the temple. It was the most sacred item in the temple. It was. And to the naked eye, Solomon's temple, it would have been magnificent to behold. I mean, it popped, right? I mean, it was wow, right? Just looking at it, but listen very carefully. Without the Ark of the Covenant, it would have been as vain as the pagan temples of this day because they did not have the Ark of the Covenant in them. Solomon's temple did. And when you consider the Ark of the Covenant, you see very clearly it is saturated with Christ in type. You cannot miss him. It was covered by the mercy seat, which represented atonement. Praise the Lord. Christ is our mercy seat. Amen. It was made of wood, which represented the humanity of Christ. It was overlaid with pure gold within and without, which, which pictured the deity of Christ. So we have the throne and presence of God in the temple via the Ark of the Covenant, which pictured Christ our atonement, but it doesn't stop there, does it? 
Because as we keep reading, we see something very clear. Because just as the Ark of the Covenant, which pictured Christ, was in the house that Solomon built, is Christ not in this house? Is he not? The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8.10, And if Christ be in you, Galatians 2.20, But Christ liveth in me, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this brings us to what the focus of worship must be as far as God is concerned. And listen, that's not just a, a trivial statement because whatever God concerns himself with is what you and I must concern ourselves with. So when, it, when we're talking about the focus of worship, you want to know what that looks like from God's perspective, and then you embrace that as yours. Listen, the focus of worship from God's perspective is bringing glory to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the focus of worship. And if that is true, and it is, and we will substantiate that biblically, then we can easily identify false worship, can't we? Because any worship offered to God today that is not offered through Christ is false worship. God says, I cannot accept that. Christ is the one and only mediator between God and men. And Christ, as the focus of worship, listen, is punctuated for us in John's gospel. John 4, 24, Jesus says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it is, a part, it is impossible to worship God apart from truth. Well, who is the truth? John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Jesus, who is the truth, is the only way to God. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Now listen very carefully. Jesus says, without me, ye can do nothing. Do you think that includes worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Absolutely. Absolutely. You cannot worship God in spirit and in truth without going through Christ. It's impossible. John 15, 8, Jesus says, Here's my Father, glorify that you bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. How is it that we render glory to God? It is through bearing much fruit as disciples of his Son, which according to John 15, 5, we cannot do without his son. Now listen, please, I, I'm going to ask you to really um, adjust your listening antenna, because we got to get this. And what we're going to look at here, I guarantee you, it is as critical as it is simple. To bring glory to God through his son means that we must personally walk with his son. 
It has been said that familiarity breeds contempt, and that is true. But it also breeds assumption. The statement, personal relationship with Christ, is so very familiar to our ears, right? And when we hear that, we usually make two very quick assumptions. The first is, oh, that's referring to people who aren't saved. Okay, and and that many times is correct. But here's the other assumption that I think is very dangerous. Since I am saved, I do have a personal relationship with Christ. Now, to get the heart and focus of worship, we have to get this. Someone can be saved, but not have a personal relationship with Christ. We have to get that. I understand positionally that we are sons of God through Christ John 1.12, I get that. But in practice, that does not automatically translate into a personal walk with Christ. The two are not automatically synonymous. Listen, if you do not have a John 15 relationship with Christ, listen, you will not be, nor can you be, a dedicated house of worship to God. Without a John 15 relationship with him. Who is it that will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ? Who is it that shall be saved yet so as by fire? Listen, obviously it's not the unbeliever because they will not be at this judgment. No, that leaves one option. This will be the person who was saved, but listen, did not have a personal relationship with Christ. You say, can you prove that? I can. According to John 15, what is the byproduct of abiding in Christ? Is it not fruit? Is it not more fruit? Is it not much fruit? That's the byproduct of abiding in Christ. Listen, barrenness is evidence of a lack of a personal relationship with Christ. Because when you have a true personal relationship with Christ, when you have a John 15 relationship with Christ, the byproduct of that will be fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Which leads, when someone doesn't have that, that leads to suffering loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Now we have to be as clear regarding what is at the heart of abiding. And Jesus makes that clear in John 15, seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, I'm gonna ask you to keep that listening antenna very sharp because we're gonna make another very critical point. Because not only can someone be saved and not have a personal relationship with Christ, listen, someone can know the word of God very well, but not abide in it. Are you hearing that? Someone can know the word of God very well, but not abide in it. 
Listen, there are going to be a number of believers at the judgment seat of Christ who rightly divided the word of truth, but will suffer great loss. The issue is not that they were doctrinally ignorant or sloppy or doctrinally indifferent. As a matter of fact, uh, they were doctrinally astute, as we could say. No, the issue will be that the word of God did not abide in them. And because of that, they failed miserably at being a true worshiper of God and were spiritually barren. And the only thing that they had to show at the judgment seat of Christ was the vain glory that they accrued from being right all the time. They won every doctrinal argument. They humiliated their coworker who was a charismatic or this or that. And man, they put them in their place. But there's no fruit. If glory to God goes through Jesus, the word, then this will be as critical. And I listen, the last thing I want to do is I don't want to offend anybody. You're like, man, you bring this guy in for the Come on, man, Troy, you'd have to do this. I mean, you could have said that. Come on, this is all you got, bro? How long have you known about this? But listen, this is critical. It is impossible to be a dedicated house of worship to God, listen, without a deep love for the word. Your heartbeat, your passion, you love it. See, you cannot love the word of God and not love sound doctrine. But would you hear this? This is crazy. You can love sound doctrine without loving the word. This is what I'm saying. Doctrinally, you can be in absolute perfect alignment with the word of God. You know what the Bible teaches, you know what it says, and you know what it does. It says you can identify error. You can identify heresy very well. Listen, if we aren't careful, brothers and sisters, we can become guilty of the very thing that we despise in many who do not hold to a faith-based view of the scriptures. That is, we become academic in our approach to God's word. With fervor, we study it well, don't we? Especially if we've got to teach or if we've got to lead a Bible study or something like that because God forbid that we would give the appearance of not knowing the word of God. But when there's no audience to wow, when there's no camera recording us, the fervor to open the word daily and be moved by the Holy Spirit of God to bring glory to God is just not that appealing, is it? The intensity just dwindles. There is something that terrifies me in ministry. 
This terrifies me. That I can spend several hours in study. Several. And have the dust clear on that without me loving and desiring God more. Hours. What does this mean? What does that mean? Let me make sure I get this right. Let me make sure I, I, I say that right. And, and I mean, hours. And when it's over, my heart is as cold and distant from God as it was before I started. Brothers and sisters, if we are spending that kind of time in study without growing deeper in the heart and focus of worship at a minimum, the Spirit of God is grieved. Now, there's another critical observation that begins here in verse 2. Would you look at it? Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Wherefore, all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast, which was in the seventh month. We will look at a lot of this in the coming days. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. These did the priests and the Levites bring up. I want to ask you a very simple question, not a trick question. Now, my pastor, Sam, I love him. You heard that. But one of the things I've learned not to do is I never take the bait when Sam asks a question from the pulpit because I'm like, I don't know, man. Because Sam will like, I was like, no, you're, you're going somewhere here. And I don't want to look like an idiot. Okay. I won't do that to you. My question is, what do you believe the gender was of the elders of Israel? All the heads of the tribes the chief of the fathers, all the men of Israel, the Levites and the priests. Let me give you a hint. The gender wasn't female. It wasn't. Wisely and correctly, the first thing Solomon did in this dedication was to have the ark move from the tabernacle into the most holy place in the temple under the wings of the cherubim, which we will see. And we'll talk more about this, but Solomon clearly learned from the misstep of his father when he tried to move the ark and did not follow God's word. If Solomon wasn't careful, this could have turned into a lot of funerals really quick. But please notice, it was all men who led in that first and very critical act in the dedication of the house of God. Now we're talking about the leadership of worship. And this is what we have to communicate. The heart and focus of worship must be exemplified in and led by men. It must be exemplified in and led by men. Brothers, in our homes, 
And in our churches, we must be in samples of a house that is totally dedicated to God and worship. We must be in samples of that. Our wives, our children, our brothers and sisters in the local church, they must be able to look to us and see what it looks like to bring glory to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, it's not that worship that is offered to God for women is a lesser or inferior worship, God forbid. It's not that. It's that all too often worship is led by women, listen, due to the absence of it being exemplified in and led by men. This is all too common, is it not? And while we know that the heart and focus of worship extends beyond singing, listen, the reason that so many praise teams and choirs are often populated and dominated by women is because men do not get the heart and focus of worship. They have not dedicated themselves totally and fully to God. But would you please notice, look at verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. We'll look at all of this later. Also, the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph and Haman and Jonathan, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. The tone of all of that is very masculine. It's very masculine. Asaph, Haman, and Jonathan had been appointed by David as worship leaders. Sixteen of the psalms that we read were designated to them. But would you notice verse 12? With their sons and their brethren. These men were leading their sons and they were leading their brothers in the worship of God. Troy referenced it this morning in Genesis 22 verse 5 where we encounter the first mention of the word worship. And what do we see there? What do we see there? Abraham said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. Guess what Abraham was doing? Abraham led his son Isaac in worship. Do you know what Isaac learned from his father? Isaac learned from his father the definition of true worship. Abraham says, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you this. I'm going to lead you in this. Brothers, if you are not a true worshiper, the likelihood of your children being one is very slim. If you are not a true worshiper, it is doubtful at best that your children will be. What an indictment. And to husbands in particular, 
the marriage relationship is a platform for husbands to exemplify and teach the meaning of true worship. Why is that? Because loving our wives as Christ loved the church, is it not rooted in the heart and focus of worship? Absolutely. One of the finest examples of this that the Lord gave me, it's been some years ago now, but it was in the, in the life of a man by the name of Robertson McQuokin. He went to be with the Lord in 2016, but he loved his wife, Muriel, with a Christ-like love. And I was listening to an interview that he was giving once where he was talking about her and sharing a testimony um, about her life and how God used all of that. But uh, in this interview, he, he shared how they were at a gathering him and Mario and some of their friends, and they were having a good time. And he said, Mario told a story. She told a story, and they all listened and, you know, kept going. He said, then she came back, and she, she told the same exact story. And she told it as if she hadn't told it already. He, thinking that maybe she was being facetious and honorary, thought, okay, well, what's, what's the joke here? What are you doing? And then she told the story again, just like she had never told it. From that moment on, it became evident that early Alzheimer's disease had set in. He tried to continue in his role as president of a Bible college and seminary that he had been at for 22 years. In the initial years of the disease, he would try and go to work and fulfill his responsibilities as president. But as soon as he would leave, she would become anxious, distressed, and in his words, sometimes terror-stricken at being away from him. She would walk a half a mile to the school, as many as 10 times a day, just an effort to be close to him. He was putting her to bed one night, and he looked at her feet and noticed that they were bloodied and blistered from all the walking. Half a mile, 10 times a day sometimes. As he reflected later on this, he was thinking about her devotion to him. And he had to admit to himself that he said, I wish I loved God like that, that I was desperate to be near him at all times, like she desires to be next to me. Her speech began to fail. And one of the last phrases that she could say to him was, I love you. It became obvious to him that the school needed him 100% of the time, and so did Mario. 
1990, he stepped down from his position as president so he could devote himself to the full-time care of Mariel. And that's what he did for the next 13 years before she passed. Years later, he was giving an interview, and he was asked if he had any regrets about resigning from his position to take care of his wife. And I want you to hear what he said. He said, I never think about what if. I don't think what if is in God's vocabulary. So I don't even think about what I might be doing instead of changing her diaper. Or what I might be doing instead of spending two hours feeding her. It's the grace of God, I'm sure. And he would later write this. When the time came, the decision was firm. I took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before, in sickness and in health, till death do his part, this was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned, however. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. Brothers, loving our wives as Christ loved the church is a definitive expression of true worship to God. It brings him great glory to say, God, I must be Christ-like. God, if it would please you to change my wife's diaper, Day after day, for years, I am totally dedicated to you. You've got me. If it means that I've got to sacrifice my career and my ambitions and my goals, how I thought life was going to go and what I thought it was going to be like or what it should be about. No, God, this is Muriel. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and you have called me to love her the way that you love me. And yes, I can stand in the congregation and I can sing how great thou art. And yes, you can hear that, and I can do that in the masses, and I can, I, I, I can look like a true worshiper. But God, when I'm home, and I'm changing this diaper for the fourth time today, and there's no one there to pat me on the back, no one there, there's no audience, there's no cameras. It's just me you and Mariel. And I'm going to do right by you because your word tells me. 
Is that the example you're setting? Is that your testimony? Is that what your sons and daughters are saying in terms of how you love your wife? Brothers, that's the heart and focus of worship. And it's what we must demonstrate. It's what we must exemplify. It's what we must lead in. But the answer to the question, is that the example you're setting, that depends, doesn't it? It depends on this. Are you truly a dedicated house of worship to God? If you're not, this is not the example you're setting, is it? This is where it starts. Many of us, most of us in this room, in this church, we're saved. but we're not dedicated. This house, it's not fully his. And whenever it's not fully his, we're always gonna have lines, aren't we? This is the line right here, God. This is as far as I will go because you don't have all of me.